Hello and welcome to a Slate Spoiler Special for the final episode in Season 5 of Downton Abbey. I am June Thomas and I am here with a man who looks dashing in tweeds, evening dresses or tea gowns. Please, June, this isn't the 1890s. Tea gowns. Seth Stevenson. Hello, Seth. Oh, June, I'm so happy to chum you on this <laughs> podcast. I was going to chum Tom. No, I thought you were okay, chumming I'll me. Okay, I'll chum you. Okay. I think of that as, isn't that chum what you, when you grind up fish guts right. and use it to troll for sharks? I believe so. Yeah. So if I was chumming you, it's more like I threw you into a meat grinder and then fed you to marine <laughs> life or right. something. Anyway, exactly. yeah. I'm so happy to chum you. Yeah. For the very last time in this season, this series of Downton Abbey, Series 5, as yeah. the Brits say. Exactly. Um, Episode 9, as they say, with their imaginative titles. Let us chum one another. (laughs) (laughs) So, June, before we really get into the meat of the episode, the Mm. chum of the episode, Mm. let me ask you, as our resident Brit, Mm. this was the Christmas episode, the Mm. Christmas special. Here in America, the way we do things is a lot of times the Christmas episode of a show will be a sort of funny one-off that's separate from the ongoing arcs of the characters. You know, we just take a time out and we have a fun little Christmas episode that maybe doesn't relate to the rest of the series. Mm. So a lot of times they'll do kind of a Dickensian type thing or it's a wonderful life type thing. So I would love to hear from you a little bit about what the Christmas episode means in Britain, its cultural relevance, because in Downton Abbey, once again, big things, big plot advancing things happen in the Christmas episode. Absolutely. So one of the big things to know, I mean, as you were discussing American Christmas episodes, my first thought was such things exist because the television over the holiday period in this country is just sad. Christmas television and lack of national health service are like the worst things about America. And in equal, my mind, equal in importance. And equally drastic. You know, I speak as a proud American now. Christmas and New Year television in Britain is so magnificent. Like as a kid, at that time, the Radio Times only had BBC shows in it and the TV Times only had commercial like ITV Channel 4 shows in it. Or actually, honestly, just ITV because I'm really old. And so I would spend hours planning out what I was going to watch, like every minute of the Christmas break. Color-coded grids. You know it. And there were only three channels at the time, so it really was. It shouldn't have been that difficult. And we didn't really watch the BBC anyway, so I don't know what was going on. But, like, the television is spectacular, and it's just like one great TV show after another. And it's all about, you know, just as in Britain, who is the number one pop record for Christmas is a big deal. And also who wins the rating wars. Like there are actually TV ratings wars over the holiday period. And yeah, they are canonical, as you might say. You know, it happens a little bit out of time. I think typically with the Downton Christmas episodes, they at least nod to Christmas at some point. I mean, this one happened in grouse season, so I presume it was August. And then we jumped to ah, Christmas. I did not realize that's when grouse season was. So that was a Glorious big first. jump. And then suddenly we saw a little title, Chiron, Christmas 1924, and mm. then we were in the thick of Christmas. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, they're totally canonical. In fact, some of them, the soap operas also, of course, because they're the biggest shows in Britain, also are on Christmas. One of my strongest memories of Christmas is the Queen is on at two o'clock, or was when I lived there, and then it was EastEnders, one of the soap operas. And EastEnders that day began with them turning off the television as if they had just watched The Queen, just like we did. Very cleverly planned. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, they're real. 
And yes, big things happened in this episode, right? Yeah. So I think it's great to have a lot of good content on at Christmas time because for a lot of people, you're trying to avoid, you're locked up with your family Mm -hmm. and maybe you've run out of things to talk about. And here in America, it's just reruns on TV or like an NBA game. There's nothing to distract you from the hell that is relatives. Um, Not my relatives. Of course. course. My relatives are perfect and fascinating (laughs) people and I never tire of conversing with them. But some people maybe would like a distraction. And over there in Britain, you've got all this great content. And that made me think about the fact that here we see the family together on a train ride, taking kind of a trip together up mm. to the Cinderby's well-appointed rented manse. Yes, yes. And they're all together. And here are the two joined in conjoined families mm-hmm. spending time together in the confines. Well, they're not that confined. It's <laughs> yeah. a massive, massive edifice, this thing. But they're locked up together and hijinks ensue. Indeed they do. Both above and below stairs, which is the ideal situation. So, okay, let's talk first about the people who stayed behind, who didn't go on the trip. I'm right in thinking, am I not, that Violet and Isabel did not high off to be with the guns. No, Violet did say her goodbyes at the train station, right. much to the surprise of her son, who was like, what, <laughs> Granny? Or not Granny, but Mom, you're, you're, you're here. Her and mom, she's like, yeah. oh, what do you think? You think I'm just like a salmon who lays my eggs in the gravel <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then leaves? That was nice that yeah. she cares enough to see them off the train station. But yes, she stayed behind right. to enact her own drama. Indeed. With Prince Carrigan and Princess Carrigan. And that was like, okay, so Princess Carrigan is... She's been damaged by all the things that have happened in her life. She's kind of crabby and she wasn't particularly friendly. She did not really extend the hand of friendship or gratitude for essentially the Dowager Countess having saved her from Shanghai, right? Yeah, yeah, Shanghai, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, thanks, Violet. I'm going to go to bed now. I mean, it wasn't a very warm reception that she got. However, we actually learned something very kind of dear, really, about Violet when Isabel asked her about how, you know, why she was being so kind to Princess Carragan, who didn't seem to reciprocate her emotional warmth. Yeah, so we discovered that the Dowager Countess indeed had planned to elope with handsome Prince Karagin. Mm. They had met each other at a wedding. The royal wedding. The royal wedding. And then there had been, you know, it's implied maybe some assignations mm-hmm. there in the dancing. and. The... I mean, let's recall, though, that, I mean, they were doing midnight skating to the strains of the balalaika. So that is pretty much irresistible. That's like third base, yeah. I think, in, <laughs> right in, there. in 1898 or whatever it was, <laughs> so, or earlier. Yes, and then I thought it was interesting the way the Dowager Countess framed this, which was they're taking off in their late-night carriage, I believe. Mm-hmm. They're going to go elope. They're going to go to the port and then go to some point beyond who knows where. And Princess Karagin wrenches the Dowager Countess out of the stagecoach or whatever it is, pulls her out by her hair and her legs. And rather than saying here with the benefit of hindsight in retrospect, rather than saying, oh, Princess Karagin took me away from this romantic life I was about to have. She ruined this path I was going to take. Instead, the Dowager Countess frames it as she owes Princess Karagin Mm -hmm. for saving her from making this mistake, for saving her marriage, for keeping her under the blanket of convention, as right. it were, right. and that, in fact, she is doing these favors, these niceties, giving fine clothes to Princess Karagan because she feels a debt of gratitude for having been wrenched by the hair out of that stagecoach. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And she 
clearly enjoys her life. I mean, I think that's one of the things she's actually been explicitly telling us in the last few episodes, that she's happy, that she is content to be in her surroundings. She likes having a friend like Isabel. She's glad to have her son and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren now, and that she knows that that would have been completely lost if she had indeed you know, gone with her heart. But at the same time, there's a little bit of regret because she also thinks that now... By rejecting Prince Karagin's entreaties, she will never again receive an immoral proposition from a man. And, and you know, it is a sad moment when you realize that that's not going to happen again. Well, we'll see about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might, might have to do something about that, June. The Dowager <laughs> Countess deserves another immoral proposal. For sure. Would you like to midnight skate with me on the... <laughs> to the strains of the balalaika. Yeah, I'm going to work up. I mean, I need to rehearse that a few times before. I mean, you don't want to, you need no. to come correct yeah, you when you do. make an immoral proposal to the Dowager Countess. When you step to the Dowager Countess, you best come correct. <laughs> yeah. And Princess Carrigan, of course, did not view her wrenching of the Dowager Countess out of the stagecoach. She, she, it was not quite a selfless act. She did not view it as that she was doing a favor. She viewed right. it as protecting her own life and her own marriage. And we've seen in this show, actually, again, I, it makes me think that something's going on in Julian Fellow's head. But we often see men who are stuck with a bad wife. I mean, partly it's convention, but Shrimpy and Susan, Prince Carragan and Princess Carragan, who for having done the Dowager Countess a favor is a total pill. And Lord Merton's now deceased wife, clearly kind of a bitch, who's created two hideous sons, one of whom, you know, Isabel made a very reasonable request that he, you know, think of his father's happiness. Could he see it in his heart? And he just said, no, bitch, get back. And, you know, you and I understand why Isabel is not prepared to live the rest of her life in an atmosphere of loathing and resentment. I mean, I appreciate that because I have to deal with Internet comments. So, I mean, I'm very familiar with those emotions, but I understand her not wanting to deal. Yeah, I do. I mean, at the same time, I feel like she's sacrificing. She and Lord Merton are such a delightful couple. He yeah. makes her so happy. And I, and Lord Merton's on her side. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I feel like they would figure it out and Larry Gray can deal. He can yeah. just shut up and deal. And it makes me sad to think that he's going to be able to keep them apart. But even if this doesn't work out, I, I feel like the Dowager Countess and Isabel – we're happy for this excitement in their lives. I mean, towards the end of the episode, they sit down together and they say, ah, the year we've had, proposals and propositions. And uh, I think this excitement for them was what, you know, however it shakes out, whether it leads to something or not, I think they're glad for a little jolt in mm-hmm. their lives. Remember, June, they were the Edwardians. That's so true. Which means so nothing hard. to me. I thought I think of the Victorians are the ones that's the uh, signifier for prim and proper. But the Edwardians, that has no – I have no context for that. As I recall, I mean, that was the break with the Victorians. I mean, and Edward was a Lothario, which I don't think they're saying that. But I think they – my interpretation, my uneducated, I'm sorry to say, interpretation of that is that they're the ones who are making this break. And they still have some – respect for convention, but they're not completely hogtied by it. They're not afraid to midnight skates. Mm-mm. How do you think this is going to work with Isabel and Lord Merton? I mean, is this the end? Was that last scene between them cut short by the Dowager Countess? Is that going to be the end of their relations? Or is there still hope for them in I... series six? <laughs> oh my goodness. I hope so, because really, it is such a sweet couple. And I love the actor who plays Lord Merton. He's very attractive. And they have really nice chemistry. Also, I think one of the things that television has learned from reality TV is you need villains. 
hideous villains will keep people coming back over and over. And we've had some really, you know, sulfurous villains down in below stairs, but even people like Barrow and, you know, the hapless Mosley are being a little bit saved or at least, you know, given very positive features. So we need some stinky evil characters. And so I think Larry Gray, who I honestly couldn't pick out of a lineup, he and his hideous brother are going to represent that, maybe. Yeah, if that's what it takes. Well, we had a few other villains in this episode. We met Stoll, mm. the uh, presumptuous valet or butler of Lord Cinderby, who in Stoll makes Spratt look like Mary oh. Poppins. I mean, Stoll is just what a dark funereal presence he was. That actor, Alan Armstrong, is just such a fantastic actor. And in real life is a Geordie like Spratt in the show. And as soon as I saw him, I was kind of clapping my hands because he is really a magnificent actor with, you know, some great roles under his belt. And he was very good as that, you know, just hideous snob of a butler. Sepulchral bearing. And boy, he hates Branson. He's he's not going to give Branson anything to drink or eat. Not going to give him milk for his tea. And uh, he has a face-off with Barrow. And that leads to a bit of a comeuppance or a thwarted comeuppance, I guess, for Lord Cinderby, who is the other villain of the episode to some degree. Right. Lady Mary is is not happy with the way that Stoll has been treating Branson. And so she asks Barrow because she knows Barrow's when you need something like dirty business done, Barrow's your man. (laughs) That's right. So she knows Barrow. Yeah, she goes to Barrow and she says, hey. I want you to shiv it, yeah. stole just a little bit. But Barrow goes a little overboard and mm-hmm. almost tears apart one of the uh, leading lights of the Jewish community of, Brit- <laughs> indeed, of 1924 indeed. Britain. Right. Because, you know, thankfully we didn't need to see how he did it. But he arranged for the, I presume, and I don't think there's much doubt, the woman who the, is and, the, the mother. Namorata yes, of Lord Cinderby. Yes, with his... Almost certainly bastard child, I guess, is the only way we can put that. Uh, I would say illegitimate. It's illegitimate child. It's a more delicate way of putting it. More delicate, more delicate. But that did kind of bring Lord Senderby down. He was, you know, shaken by the sudden appearance. Everything in life was threatened. It was kind of a big win for Rose because she used her resourcefulness, her quick-wittedness, and saved the day by very quickly passing off this poor woman, this Diana who'd been manipulated into showing up and, you know, kind of brought it all off. And Lady Cinderby was kind of fooled. She had the wool pulled over her eyes by Rose and Rose made a lifetime friend of Lord Cinderby. This made me think that if only Isabel could make some similar rearrangement of things, if she could get Larry Gray's, you know, illegitimate child to show up somehow or something like that so she could save the day and win his favor. That sounds like a Barrow-type scheme where he has the dog lost so he can then go find it. Right, Right, exactly. And so we met Mary Mary Chumped (laughs) for this fellow Henry... Talbot, Talbot, I believe is his name. And we didn't learn nothing like a lot about him. He sort of mistook her for a war widow. And in fact, she was a car crash widow. And then he has a nice car and he's a good shot. And that's about all we know about He doesn't have a nice car. He has a, what did she say? Snappy. A snappy chariot. (laughs) Snappy chariot. Which like, I'm sorry, but she lost her husband to a car crash. The last person she should be interested in is a guy who's obsessed with fast cars and dangerous driving. Come on. I think Mary's doomed to be unlucky in love. I think that's Mary's role. She will have an exciting, 
Um, Life with animal husbandry. Yes. Um, but Farm in management. Ways, in some ways calamitous in terms of romance. Yeah. But what about Edith's new boat? So he's referred to as the agent. Is that an right. estate agent? And, in, and if we transfer it to American, does that mean he's a real estate broker? No, it's the same role that Tom plays. So it's a sort of a managerial role, perhaps ah. with some making plans. So kind of a project manager come, I don't know, general manager. So Edith's hoping he's got a head for business and a bod for sin. Exactly. <laughs> Well, he's a good gun. And it seemed, too, that it was rather, I don't know, clunkily presented that he was kind of at least gentry. He's not perhaps a right honorable like her, but he doesn't have a title, but he's not a complete nobody. He's kind of a a cousin or something to real aristocracy. And in Downton Abbey's world, that's all Edith deserves. He's he's never going to get someone of the same social status and intellectual equal who loves her for who she is and is a devoted partner. She's going to have to settle one or two rungs down. But this guy seemed like a very nice guy, very down to earth, and it could be a good match for Edith. He perhaps will be an excellent father to Marigold if they ever admit that Marigold is back Edith's child. We'll see if that happens in like 1938. Mm Mm-hmm. But good for Edith. Yeah. It's nice to see Edith finally have something. We also saw her hair down. She had like fantastic hair. And you're like, the style of the times of always wearing your hair up did a great disservice to Edith and her lovely curls. And there was another burn from Mary on Edith. I mean, there, Mary just says to Edith, there's something about how like, oh, Mary, you're you're upset because you're, you're being left behind because Tom Branson's going off to Boston. You're being left behind while everyone does exciting things in your life. And she says, oh, no, no, no. I'm just upset because I'm being left behind with Edith. What, is, <laughs> what an unnecessary swipe at Edith. Awful, awful. Okay, so that, I think, takes care of the events above stairs, right? That's basically it, but downstairs, Oh, downstairs, things are roiling and broiling. Things are popping. Yeah, well, let's just get that one thing out of the way. The Bateses. I guess Anna was locked up, now she's out. Bates ran away, now he's back. I mean, whatever, right? Please be done. I couldn't hear you, I was yawning. Yeah, be done with that, don't care. Please give Anna something (laughs) else to do. And Bates showed up, I guess he'd been in hiding, he was on the lam, and he showed up at the end of the episode at Christmas, and they had, it was implied there was going to be some rumpy pumpy. I know, some nuky, I mean, (laughs) some some attempt to impregnate Anna. This is like, of all the things I don't want to think about, that is number one. But mm, happier, coupling. much happier, bringing a tear to my eye, welling me up. We've all been waiting for this. The heart, the broth. Yes, of course, it's the broth. <laughs> the Danker made was the major development. What a momentous narrative that was! That Danker was having trouble making the broth, and Spratt poured it into the sink, and that, of course, was oh. the major development of the Christmas episode. The end. The, See you next right. season, June. <laughs> No, of course, what we're talking about for the the Harson shippers, the Q's shippers, we all knew it was coming and it came to a head much as Matthew proposed to Mary in mm-hmm. the Series 2 Christmas episode. With the snow falling upon them. In some ways, peak Downton Abbey at yeah. that moment. Yeah. Well, we might have a new, a downstairs, if you will, a downstairs peak Downton Abbey Carson proposing to Hughes in what a moving manner. He bought this cottage and Hughes said, oh, no, I'd been giving my money to my sister who is not right in the head and is maybe institutionalized. I can't afford to go in with you as a partner on this cottage. And Carson says, well, guess what? I bought it for both of us. And by the way, will you marry me? And it seemed that her response was a little hard to read exactly, even though you'd think they would be able to like read each other's cues by now. But then she told him, you know, such a romantic statement, I do want to be stuck with you. And <laughs> of, so, Of course I'll marry you, you old booby. That's what she says. 
<laughs> I thought you'd never ask. Yeah. And that was lovely because they are very nice, good people. And they disagree about enough things like, you know, Carson obviously is a merry partisan and Hughes knows that she's a right little troublemaker. And so that in itself seems like a recipe for a fantastic relationship. But they're, you know, so reserved. Like, have they even hugged before? Please like, don't suggest such a thing. Premarital hugging. No, oh, never. Out of order, not allowed. Certainly no midnight skating. <laughs> and No I, balalaika for them. I mean, but I think that's okay. I mean, I think they want a partnership of respect and just enjoying each other's company, and they need some companionship a in companion these later marriage years. that will surely have some just stonking, rumpy bumpy in, in that <laughs> cottage that they'll be retiring to. They need to try out all those rooms to make sure they're <laughs> make sure the beds are comfortable for their paying guests. Oh my God, we're going we're moving into the uh, the realm of uh, like Thirty Shades of Grey, Thirty Shades of of people in dark suits at this point. But it was a nice episode. I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was pleasant. There was like the nonsense with the broth was really, really annoying because, oh, my God, could the stakes be any lower on Downton Abbey? Sometimes I think they break all the rules of narrative. I mean, I'm glad that that whole business with the bases is over because I hate it from start to finish. But you set up this, oh, my God, he could die. She could die. And then it's just like resolved off stage. Oh, it's fine. No worries. Yeah. Well, at least the broth gave us time to savor Spratt's unbelievable facial expressions. Yes. I did enjoy Spratt's behavior during that entire episode. But we need to think about going into series six, which, I mean, I think we can be pretty certain it's going to happen the way that season five, this train is chugging along. So what can we expect? So is Branson just out of the picture now? Are Branson and Sibby out of the picture? Will they make occasional appearances or are we done with them? I think that they must come back. I mean, just because there was this constant repetition of you'll bring Sibby back, right? We'll see you again. I mean, I guess maybe for the Christmas specials or something, or at least that door is open. I would say that's about an acting contract or something for Alan Leach. I mean, it seemed like the door was very much open. There's no conflict there. Well, let us take a moment to think of Sibby. That was really a rather sweet moment. They remembered Sybil, and Lady Sybil, of course, was my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. And so I did take a moment to remember, darling darling Sybil, wherever you are, I love you, booby. (laughs) Take a moment to, uh, I love the way you love her, Seth. I thought that was kind of a nice line. That that was sort of what I was a little... Uh, schmalty, but I like the way that Branson expressed his fondness. Men could not just say, I love you to each other. He mm-hmm. couldn't really do that. But he could say, I love the way you love her. And by the <laughs> transitory property of love, he was able to indicate to Lord Grantham um, some small measure of, of affection. Exactly. I don't know what else, though, we can kind of look forward to next season. We know that certain people will be back. We can prepare for the sort of the inevitable spin-off for 10 seasons of uh, that will be set in Carson and Hughes's bed and breakfast. And this time there was no horrible rending of the fabric of the community. So yeah, I'm just like, bring us yet more repetitions of the same damn themes in another year's time. Can't wait. June, it has been marvelous discussing Downton Abbey Series 5 with you, Booby, Donk, Shrimpy. <laughs> Oh, crikey. It's been great, you know, dreaming of those tweeds. I cannot wait for more of it next time. T-Gowns, I'll be writing a cookery book during my hiatus. I'll be getting a bob. And uh, we'll see you back for Series 6. Come back, y'all.